You will fail. So what? Everybody does. But your gym, your watch, your yoga pants, they pretend you won't. So when you miss a day, eat the pancakes. Give up on a workout? You failed? Seriously, what the hell? We're body. We've been a part of that too, but not anymore. At body, we're rejecting perfection and embracing reality. Not in a pizza Monday kind of way, in a loving your whole life kind of way. In a, this workout is fun and it's okay if I take a week off kind of way. In an, I'm eating healthy and it's okay if I indulge kind of way. In a, I like myself no matter what kind of way. Yeah, you will fail. We all will. But we're not going to let that be the end. You see that? We're already making progress. So let's keep going. We are body. Start your free trial at body.com. That's B-O-D-I dot com. Welcome back to the Great Unsolved Podcast. I'm your host, Alexis, and this week we are talking about the disappearance of Chiron Horman from Portland, Oregon in 2010. Before we get into it, make sure to follow at Great Unsolved on Twitter, at Great Unsolved Pod on Instagram, join our Facebook group, and like our Facebook page, both of which can be done by searching Great Unsolved on Facebook. We also have a Patreon where there are tons of Patreon-only episodes, a monthly bonus episode, and a lot more. Please be sure to rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this podcast. It helps us show up more for people who are looking for unsolved true crime podcasts. So let's get into the disappearance of Chiron Horman. Chiron Horman disappeared on June 4th of 2010 from Skyline Elementary School in Portland, Oregon. He was last seen after attending a morning science fair, but he never actually made it to his classroom. At the time of his disappearance, he was 7 years old with brown hair and blue eyes, 3 foot 8 inches tall, and 50 pounds. He was wearing a black t-shirt that had CSI in green on the front, and a handprint graphic on the back. He was also wearing black cargo pants, white socks, black and orange sketchers, and metal frame glasses. An important thing to note about Chiron's life is that his mother, Desiree, and his father, Kane, divorced about a month before he was born. They shared custody until Desiree got kidney failure and needed a lot of medical attention, She had to travel places for trials and whatnot, so she could not really care for Chiron as much as she used to. This is when Kane took full custody, but Desiree was still very active in Chiron's life. In 2007, Kane married Terry Moulton, and the two had a daughter together. Terry was a big part of Chiron's life because Desiree was sick and she was often getting medical treatment. Terry was like a mother to Chiron, and she is a very prevalent person in this case, 
and actually one of the main persons of interest. There's not a ton of background on this case to go over before the timeline. There are going to be some things that come out after the timeline, but let's just jump into June 4th, 2010, the day that Chiron disappeared. Around 8 a.m., Terry brought Chiron to Skyline Elementary School instead of him taking the bus like normal. This was said to be because he was bringing a science fair project with him, and it can be kind of hard to bring those big projects on buses, so it's just easier for her to bring him to school with the project. Some sources say that he actually brought the project the day before, but either way, Terry went with Chiron to school that morning. It was said that parents were able to come and see all the science fair projects that morning, so it's not really odd that he was driven to school rather than taking the bus. When Terry and Chiron got to the school, it stated that they brought Chiron's backpack and jacket into his classroom first, and then Terry even talked to the teacher and said they were going to go look at some other projects around the school. This comes into the theories suspects part of the case because people find it really odd that although Chiron's backpack and jacket were in the classroom all day, the teacher wasn't very concerned that Chiron did not show up to class. She reported him absent like she should, but no one was notified until about eight hours later that Chiron was not at school, despite his belongings being there. Around 8.15 a.m., the PTA president at the school states that she saw Chiron and Terry at the science fair. A lot of people question if Chiron even went to school that day, but with multiple sightings of him and Terry at the school, it's pretty concrete that he was at the school that morning. So we know nothing happened to him before around 8.45 a.m. on June 4th of 2010. At 8.45 a.m., the bell rang and Chiron and Terry raced up the stairs. This is from Terry's series of events that happened. Apparently, they often raced up the stairs and Chiron always won because Terry was also carrying a baby. Terry saw Chiron ahead of her walking down the hallway toward his class and instead of chasing after him to say bye, she just yelled to him that she was leaving and she left. Chiron was on his way to class, so she figured everything was okay. The rest of the timeline, until we find out Chiron is missing, focuses on Terry's movements, and this is because so many people believe she is guilty, despite nothing being proved and no evidence coming forward. But police have been looking at her also. Still, it's all alleged that she had anything to do with his disappearance. So between 9 and 9.12 a.m., shortly after she left Skyline Elementary, Terry goes to one Fred Meyer's store to get earache medication for her daughter. Around 9.30 to 10 a.m., it's an estimate, we don't know the exact time, Terry goes to another Fred Meyer's store, and then Terry stopped at the dry cleaners. A little after 10 a.m., Terry stopped at a Michael's Craft store, and these are all concrete timelines based on the receipts that she has. 
Between 10 a.m. and 11.39 a.m., Terry says she was driving her daughter around to soothe her earache, but this is pretty much a time of no alibi. A lot of people kind of question if this is an actual thing, but then other people say it makes sense that the movement of the car would cure, not cure an earache, but help with the pain. I don't really have an opinion one way or another, but there is no surveillance of her no receipts from this time, so we aren't really sure where she is for this hour and a half. Between 11.39 a.m. and 12.20 p.m., Terry goes to her gym and puts her daughter in the gym daycare, which is another point of contention in the case. A lot of people find it odd that if her daughter had this terrible earache, Terry would bring her to a daycare, and I guess that could be seen as odd, but if the baby was on medication, maybe it was better by then. I'm not sure. By 12.40 p.m., it is assumed that Terry and the baby get home. At 1.21 p.m., we know Terry used her home computer to post Chiron's science fair pictures on Facebook. And around 2 p.m., Kane got home and states that Terry was still on the computer. An hour and a half later at 3.30 p.m., Terry, Kane, and their daughter walked to the bus stop to pick up Chiron. However, when they got there, he did not get off the bus. The bus driver said that Chiron never actually got on the bus. So Terry called the school and was informed that no one had seen Chiron that day and that he had been marked absent. It's kind of unclear if Terry and Kane got to the school first or after, but at 3.46 p.m., a secretary at the school called 911 to report Chiron missing. About 45 minutes later at 4.33 p.m., Portland Police and Multnomah Sheriff's Department arrive at Skyline Elementary and the Horman home simultaneously. At 5.30 p.m., Portland Public Schools sent out a text to all the parents telling them about the disappearance of Chiron. Between 7 and 7.45 p.m., the sheriff calls the FBI about the disappearance. And there's a lot of praise for the sheriff in doing this because often police departments and sheriff's offices do not want to get the FBI involved for some reason. They want to be the one to solve it. But the sheriff here thought this was very odd for Chiron to be missing, and he called the FBI right away. By 8.09 p.m., search teams started arriving at Skyline Elementary School. But by 10.40 p.m., officers stated that the school and the family home had been thoroughly searched and absolutely nothing was found. The next day on June 5th, 2010, at 9.08 a.m., the first official notification about Chiron missing and a tip line was created. So after the police went out and told everybody that Chiron was in fact missing, a tip line was created for anybody who wanted to call in if they had seen anything the day before. Around 12 p.m., a spokesman in the case says the case is still considered a missing person and not yet a criminal investigation case. 
On June 6th of 2010 at 8.58 a.m., Terry goes to Facebook and tells people that she ordered a thousand flyers for Chiron's disappearance and that she would let people know when they arrived and when people could come pick them up. At 9.48 a.m., 300 students and parents show up to Skyline Elementary School to be interviewed, and this lasted until 4 p.m. At 9 p.m., just two days after Chiron disappeared, the Sheriff's Department changed the case to a missing endangered child case, rather than just a missing child case. On June 8th, a reward fund is created, and on June 9th, Terry turns her Facebook to private. On June 11th, the family makes their first media appearance, thanking the community and telling Chiron that they needed him home if he was watching. Although on June 5th, the police stated it was still a missing persons case and not a criminal investigation, by June 13th, the case did move to a criminal investigation case. They now believed foul play was involved and something bad had happened to Chiron. On June 15th, 30 billboards with Chiron's picture and information started to go up in the Portland, Oregon area. This was donated by a company, not put out by the family or police. By June 25th, polygraphs took place. Terry had three, but walked out for one, so she really only had two of them. It is stated that Terry failed, but Desiree and Kane passed with flying colors. It's stated that Terry was questioned for a really long time before the polygraph took place, which normally isn't the case. She was also told that she failed a question each time she did fail a question throughout the polygraph and asked why she thought she had failed, which also I don't believe is generally what happens. Supposedly, after these polygraphs, Terry was very mad that she failed and told everybody that she did fail and that she was mad about it, which just doesn't seem normal. If you are guilty, you wouldn't want to tell everybody that you failed the polygraph. One reason she gave for failing these polygraphs was that she was either partially or fully deaf in one ear and they would not accommodate her. Apparently, she told them this, and they did not fix the setup to be able to speak into her good ear or something along those lines. So she really pushed that her ear, her being partially or fully deaf in one ear, contributed to her failing the polygraph. On June 26th of 2010, at 5.17 p.m., Terry places a call to 911 about a threat. We don't find out what this threat is till later, though. At 11.39 p.m., Terry calls 911 once again about a custody issue. Apparently, Kane takes his and Terry's daughter and leaves the home. On June 28th, the sheriff's office releases a statement that Desiree and Kane are cooperating. Apparently, they asked the sheriff to release this statement, which could either be seen as kind of sketchy because they wanted it broadcasted that they were cooperating, 
or maybe people were just questioning them too much and they wanted that to stop. It is also discovered that Terry was served with a restraining order from Kane and divorce papers that same day. On July 4th, 2010, a bombshell comes out in the case. It is discovered that a former landscaper for the family, Terry and Kane, was allegedly hired by Terry to kill Kane. This was said to be about six or seven months before Chiron went missing. Welcome to BreezeLine, where you'll say, ta-ta, T-Mobile. Our home internet is just plain better, more reliable and faster because we put internet first. If there's network congestion, we won't slow your internet down like T-Mobile does to help their cell customers. And right now, you can try out a true internet experience with BreezeLine's reliable and fast fiber-powered home internet. Find your perfect speed with prices starting at $19.99 a month for 24 months. Terms and conditions apply. Go to BreezeLine.com to learn more. However, there's a few issues with this story. The landscaper and Terry do not speak each other's language. The landscaper spoke Spanish, he did not have good English, and Terry did not speak Spanish. So the communication barrier kind of lends itself to this not being a real story. It is said that the landscaper needed a translator for the interview, which backs this part up even more. In the landscaper's story, he also says that him and Terry met in public at a restaurant to talk about killing Kane, and he says that they had an affair as well. There's no evidence to back up that they ever went to eat together, and a public restaurant doesn't seem like a great place to discuss a murder-for-hire plot, especially if you guys can't understand each other. And there's no evidence to suggest that there was ever an affair. The 911 call placed about a threat on June 26th was believed to be this landscaper showing up at Terry and Kane's home after Kane left or when Kane wasn't there, something along those lines. And the landscaper was being pretty pushy. And this may have been a reason for him to create this story, but we really don't know anything about the story. July 16th and 17th of 2010, Terry is forced to leave the home, and Kane and their daughter were able to move back in. On July 21st of 2010, public pressure starts to mount on Terry's friend, Dee Dee. She wasn't really a part of this case before July 21st, but after July 21st, she is a large part of many theories in the case. Supposedly, Dee Dee had stayed with Terry after Kane left. She had driven Terry to and from her attorney's office, and she was originally very cooperative with police. This is all alleged but it's said before Chiron went missing, Terry and Dee Dee weren't very close friends. But after Chiron went missing, it seems Dee Dee was always there for Terry. When asked about where she was on the day Chiron disappeared, Dee Dee says she was at work the entire day. I believe she worked as a landscaper or a gardener, some kind of outdoor work for people. And it's said that she was at a client's house all day. But witnesses say she was missing for about 90 minutes at 11.30 a.m. 
A coworker had called her around lunch, and the homeowner had called her as well, but she didn't answer either of these times and just showed up about an hour and a half later. This same day, or maybe later in July, it seems that more specific areas were beginning to be searched by police, which makes it seem more like a body recovery search than a missing persons search. It seems like they had some kind of tip that led them to these areas, as they were very specific areas. Unfortunately, by September 21st, billboards started to be taken down when there was no sign of Chiron and no tips that led to really any evidence about his missing persons case. On October 25th of 2010, Kane submits his affidavit in his and Terry's custody battle saying, quote, emotionally disturbed individual focused on her own needs, end quote, which kind of plays into a lot of people's theories on this case, that she was disturbed and she only focused on herself. Eventually, I believe it was months later, Terry was granted supervised visitation with her daughter. On November 15th of 2010, Desiree, which is Chiron's mom, publicly accuses Terry of hating Chiron. But there's a lot of conflicting stories in this case for Desiree, Kane, and Terry, and it seems like a lot of petty arguments and things that shouldn't be part of this case at all. So you got to take everything that is said by any of them with a grain of salt. On June 2nd of 2011, about a year after Chiron went missing, it is announced that the Chiron Task Force will dissolve July 1st, but investigation will continue full-time. On August 14th of 2014, Terry finally speaks publicly about the disappearance of Chiron. This is about four years after he disappeared. She says, quote, He needs to be found. I love my son, I want him home more than anything, end quote. So that's pretty much the end of the timeline. There are a lot of other like little things. I didn't go deep into the searches because nothing has been found. So they're not really worth mentioning. But let's look into just some more information on the case and some notes I have written down. Police really seem to be looking at Terry as a suspect and Dee Dee as an accomplice. Police also say that the investigation is still open and active. They state that they get about 1 to 20 leads a month, but it doesn't seem like these leads are going anywhere, so I don't know how active the case is. After Chiron disappeared, Terry stated that she believes a man in a white pickup truck took Chiron. Apparently, the morning Chiron went missing, this man was said to be acting weird at a nearby 7-Eleven. I'm not sure if Chiron and Terry stopped at the 7-Eleven before school, or if she stopped there after, or if this man ever saw Chiron, but this is what she states she believed happened to Chiron. It is worth noting that Kane and the school landscaper both drove white pickup trucks. 
the school landscaper is a whole other rabbit hole to dive into. A lot of people think that maybe he had something to do with it as he wasn't super cooperative and a few other things. But since Terry said that she believes a man in a white pickup truck kidnapped Chiron, it's worth noting that Chiron's father and this landscaper both had white pickup trucks as well. At the time of Chiron's disappearance, Skyline Elementary School had eight or nine unlocked entrances. So it would be pretty easy for someone to just walk in and walk out without being noticed. This was back in 2010, and since then, security has gone up like crazy. I know all the schools I went to, you could only go in one door. You had to go to the office, and then you had to go back out that same door. So it's a little more difficult to kidnap a child if that's the system. But just having all the entrances unlocked means that anyone from the street could have walked into that school the morning Chiron disappeared. There are some reports from June 4th of 2010 that state Terry had an unknown individual in her van when she brought Chiron to school. Others state that they actually saw Chiron leave the school with Terry that morning. This would put even more suspicion on Terry if either one of these are true. If Chiron left with her, then we know she most likely did something because nobody else saw Chiron after that. If there was an unknown individual in the car, it's very odd that this person has not come forward or Terry has not tried to clear up who this person was. So let's get into the theories on this case. The main one is that Terry did something. We know from her own report that she was the last person to really see him. According to Desiree, Terry really hated Chiron, but once again, we have to take that statement with a grain of salt. She was unaccounted for for some time that morning, about an hour and a half, an hour and 40 minutes, but she states she was just driving around with her daughter. She also pointed the finger at a random man four years later, this man that was supposedly acting weird at 7-Eleven and supposedly drove a white pickup truck. Seems kind of odd that if she believed this, she did not tell police immediately. That either points towards it being a story she made up much later because suspicion was on her, or points towards her not really caring if Chiron was in fact kidnapped by this man. It is also a little suspicious that she walked out of her third polygraph and lawyered up right away. Polygraphs are not a science. As much as people want them to show proof of something, they don't. Really anything can mess with the results of that. So I don't find an issue with her walking out. And it makes sense that she lawyered up. She was being seen as a suspect. So that your best option there is to lawyer up so that you don't accidentally incriminate yourself in something you didn't do. But to the public and to those who don't know a lot about that kind of stuff, it seems very suspicious if someone lawyers up and does not fully cooperate with police. I do have some problems with the idea of Terry doing something to Chiron. I don't understand why she would run errands if he was in the car, whether he was dead or alive. Someone, it seems, would have seen him. 
If he was in the car dead, you would think she would want to get rid of the body as fast as possible. And if he was in the car alive when she was running errands, somebody would have seen him or a camera probably would have caught something. The only time she's unaccounted for is about 90 minutes total. And she did things and had witnesses before and after this time. 90 minutes is not that long to kill somebody, hide their body, get rid of any evidence, and then get back to things like normal. It just doesn't seem plausible that she ran all these errands, killed him, hit his body, cleaned up, and then went to the gym for some reason. Another theory is that a random person, maybe this man at 7-Eleven, did something to Chiron or kidnapped him. Obviously, the school was very easy to get into. Nothing has really been found in the case, and if it was someone close to Chiron, you would think that more evidence would be found, or there would at least be enough circumstantial evidence to place someone under arrest, but there isn't. There has been no charges against the known suspects, so that kind of makes it seem 12 years later like none of them had anything to do with it. The last theory is that the school staff, that being the teacher, secretary's principal, or even the landscaper, had something to do with Chiron's disappearance and most likely ultimate murder. Like I said earlier, it's odd that no one reported him absent with worry. The teacher reported him absent, but if a kid's absent, you don't get worried about that. However, if you saw the child that morning, you saw the parent that morning, and his backpack and coat are still in your classroom, you would think you would be a little more worried because that kind of shows that he should be there when he's not. Even if you saw the child and the parent that morning and they decided to bring him back home, they would most likely come get his backpack and his coat, not leave it in the classroom for a whole day. Chiron would also trust school staff because he knew them and they were persons of authority, so he would go with them willingly. There would not be a struggle that would be seen. It would be fairly easy for a school staff member to kidnap him. It would also be easy for the staff to hide him in the school and get him out before he was reported missing because they know all the spots in the school and this was a very busy day. They had the science fair that morning with all the parents there, and it said that later that day they had a talent show. So there was a lot going on. People would not notice someone missing or someone in a weird spot in the school. I couldn't find a ton of information on this last piece, but there was suspicion that Chiron was being sexually abused by someone at school. Apparently there were some behavior issues and some other things, but together this can point to sexual abuse in a child's life. And a lot of people think if this was in fact happening, the teacher or the staff member, whoever was doing this to Chiron, could have kidnapped him and killed him to cover it up. It's fairly obvious that Chiron did not just wander off on his own. He was seven years old in Portland, Oregon, Searches did start eight hours after he technically went missing, but somebody would have seen something if he had just wandered off, and there would have probably been more evidence found by now. 
So it's pretty unanimous that somebody did something to Chiron, whether that be Terry, somebody else in the family, somebody at the school, or a random person off the street. Most people, including police, think that Chiron is no longer alive and that somebody had kidnapped him that day. Remember to follow us on Twitter at Great Unsolved and on Instagram at Great Unsolved Pod. You can join our Facebook group and like our Facebook page by searching Great Unsolved on Facebook. We have a Patreon with a lot of Patreon-only episodes, ad-free episodes, and a lot more. All of that is linked in the description of this episode. If you have time, be sure to rate us five stars so that we show up easier for other people looking for unsolved true crime podcasts. Thank you for looking into the case of Chiron Horman with me. If he is still alive today, he would be 19 years old. But like I said, it's most likely that he did not survive long after he went missing. Stay safe and have a great rest of your week. Welcome to Breezeline, where you'll say ta-ta, T-Mobile, because we have 99.9% network reliability, and they don't. That's right. Time, weather, or even streaming in a basement won't affect our superior service. That's because we have real internet, backed by our fiber-powered network. And T-Mobile? Well, they just have a 5G cellular network. So for a limited time, find your perfect speed with prices starting at $19.99 a month for 24 months. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Breezeline.com to learn more. The Venture X card from Capital One gives you premium travel benefits. Perfect for seeing Taylor Swift The Eras Tour. Presented by Capital One. Oh, I do love her. Earn five times miles on flights and ten times miles on hotels through Capital One Travel. Enjoy your stay in Suite 13. Whoa, 13? That's Taylor's lucky number. The Venture X card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details.